You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors, episode 38. And today, once again, instead of a usual guest in my talk or, or interview, um, I'm bringing you a recording of a talk. I've done that before. It was on episode 35, and at the time it was a talk by Irish Wildlife Trust campaign officer Porrick Fogarty. And that episode had a, quite a few hits, so I decided to do it again. And uh, today uh, it's a talk given to members of uh, Irish Wildlife Trust, Dublin branch. And I want to take that opportunity to say thank you. Um, thank you for um, you know allowing me to be there with my equipment and recording an episode. Thank you to Barbara from Irish Wildlife Trust Dublin branch. Unfortunately, I know her only uh, by her single name, Barbara. And also thank you to Porek Fogarty for continuous support. And uh, and a talk is uh, titled "Is it time to panic?" or "Time to panic?" question mark. And it's given by uh, John Gibbons. John Gibbons is a campaigning journalist and climate change activist. He's the author of an environmental blog, thinkorswim.ie. That's thinkorswim.ie. John is quite known for his work uh, and his activism uh, related to climate change. He was guest on RTE. He was guest on BBC. He contributed to many papers and, and articles. So I am pretty sure that uh, those of you, my dear listeners, who are following the climate change activism and uh, actions to push the governments to do something about it, are uh, well aware of John's work and, and know him really well. Um, so that makes me even more happy to bring you that talk by John. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, John Gibbons. Decided to be a little provocative and put it out there, time to panic. Uh, those of you who, who know her will be familiar with the phrase which I borrowed from uh, Greta Thunberg, the remarkable 16-year-old who's been uh, kicking ass and taking names on climate change over the last six months in a way that seasoned campaigners are looking at her in complete disbelief. She has actually moved the needle uh, in terms of a societal response in a way, as I said, that, that certainly in my lifetime I haven't seen. Am I right And everybody in the room has come across Greta in their travels, yeah? Cool, okay. So, anyway, this is me, the up-to-date me and where I work and so on. So, I'm going to start with this uh, interesting from the New York Times just at the very end of 2018, and it's an interesting headline. Why 2018 was the best year in human history. And he's right, it was the best year in human history. It was the year, I guess, in human history in which we, uh, shall we say, achieved our latest peak. Peak population, peak consumption, peak growth, peak expansion. Notwithstanding the odd uh, economic hiccup here and there and the odd recession, basically it is currently we live in what we call peak humans. So, obviously, the people in this room know differently. We're all aware of this particular graphic which shows us that the economic domain that our previous correspondent is talking about is, of course, a subset of the social domain, which in turn is a subset of the biosphere, the ecological domain. This is pretty obvious, but you'd be amazed how many people haven't yet or ever 
got their heads around this basic fact. So, I suppose when you come to research things like this, obviously you go to your friend Google and you look it up and see, well, I need to get some information. So, um, as you can see, this is not a major preoccupation, let's say, for most people. So, obviously, just so you know what I was actually looking for, this is what I found. And, of course, the problem with doing this kind of slideshow is my slides keep going out of date. Uh, 2018 is now popped in at number four. So, the only non-21st century year still in the top ten is 1998, which, as you know, was the uh, most intense El Nino year of the 20th century. So, it has been displaced almost completely out of the top ten hottest. So, we know all this. So, what does it mean? I think that's probably the more important thing. So, this is another headline from the Washington Post that I pulled out about a year ago. And I thought it really stuck in my mind because of the time scales that we're talking about here. And I basically say, what we're doing on Earth has no parallel for 66 million years. That's a lot of years. That takes us way outside of the human domain. We've really only been about it for about 200,000 years or so in our, in, our, in our current manifestation. So, we really are the new kids on the ecological block. And yet, our impacts are now stretching way outside of any period in which humans have been involved in history, which is interesting. So, and yet, as this wonderful uh, slide from California from a few months back shows so well, you know, the place may be burning down, but nobody's freaking out. It's business as usual. I think it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful slide that captures that, you know, this thing the as we adjust, we're constantly adjusting to the, to the shifting baseline. So basically, as our ecology goes up in flames around us, well, you know, we don't let that handicap us. We play on through. So obviously, it's affecting different people in different ways. So for us in the rich West, we're kind of up to our knees in it a little bit from time to time. Obviously, people in the poorer parts of the world are already up to their necks in the side effects and the consequences of course, not just climate change. Climate change, if you like, think of it as the tip of the ecological arrow. That's the best way I can describe it. Or another way of thinking about climate change is the exhaust fumes out the, the, the exhaust pipe of industrialized civilization. The problem with the exhaust fumes from this particular civilization is that we're running it in a closed garage. So the exhaust fumes eventually become the big thing. But anyway, I'll come back to that. So, we have to do a science bit, but I promise to keep it very, very brief and highly abridged. So, this little chart, which you may have come across in your travels, it shows cumulative heat for the Earth since 1950. Now, the bit you can't read because the bottom of the screen is chopped off, is that the, the rate of energy buildup since 1970 is the equivalent in energy terms of 2.5 Hiroshima bombs per second. Okay? Interesting figure. So, you think of the energy release of 2.5 Hiroshima's per second. Now, the interesting thing about this is that all the kind of IPCC panic and stuff that you generally hear about focuses on this teeny weeny little bit here, 3 or 4% of the energy that is actually making its way into the atmosphere. The surprise package is the 93% or so of this excess energy that has been converted into ocean heat. It's now penetrating down 700 meters, heading for 2,000 meters down. So we're creating an enormous heat sponge. I often think of it as rather like a very stiff bow. And we're pulling more and more heat and piling energy in, which is essentially what we're doing here. So, as I say, that's what you're looking at. Now, as I mentioned, 2.5 Hiroshima's per second since 1970. But since 2000, the fun has really started. That has stepped up. Oh, here we go, yeah. That has stepped up to four 
Hiroshima's per second. Things have really taken off. We've really put the boot to the floor, which is a little unfortunate, because if you think about this, in about 1988, we, you can go, go back to when um, Jim Hansen first addressed the, the US Senate, and basically when we really began to get our heads around climate change as a reality. And 1992 then, we had the formation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So really, from think about it as a three-decade period in which the world has decided to get its act together on climate change, okay? We can say, we can give ourselves a free pass up until, say, 1990. Yeah? It sounds, well, what you're describing sounds so serious. Ah, no, it's a laugh. Well, it sounds so serious that it seems like this we can do in our human efforts to control the environment, you know, if it's such a huge uh, problem, you know? Okay. I just feel it. What, 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 what is this we can do, isn't it? Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting, cheap, last-minute solutions available shortly, don't worry. Okay, so yeah, I take your point, but as I said, uh, the bit about, you know, time to panic, that was the clue that if you were looking for good news and major cheers, you're probably on the wrong floor of Sweetman's tonight, okay? So, anyway. Um, so, um, right. Just looking at the, this global ocean heat anomaly over the period since 1960, 2015. And this is the period really that we need to worry about, this, this massive energy accumulation that I've talked about. Now, again, how does this play out? This is, the, this is where things get interesting. So, now, unfortunately, the bottom of this slide again is truncated, which is a little unfortunate. But anyway, this is the end of the last ice age. So this takes us back approximately, yay. Magic. Turn it off. No. Oh, that's it. We're done for. All right. Sorry. That's all right. Okay. Not to worry. We'll 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 truck on. So. So this is basically this period in history that we call the Holocene. Everything that we know about human history is packed into this ten or eleven thousand years. Agriculture. Urbanization. Everybody you know, every civilization you've ever heard of has happened in just this little sliver, which, by the way, is only 5% of the time that we've been here as a species. We spent 95% of our own evolutionary history as hunter-gatherers. So only 5% of our evolutionary history has been in this period. And yet, the bit that, if you like, the, the full stop at the end of this sentence is really a tiny little dot. But what you'll notice more than anything is the extraordinary stability of the climate during that period. During all that 12,000 period, it has never exceeded one degree above what we currently call pre-industrial. It has been amazingly stable. You would almost think, for Gaia adherents among you, that there was some, somebody pulling the levers. It's an extraordinarily stable interglacial period in which we have gotten rich and taken over the world. And we've done it thanks to this amazingly stable climate. Now, this, as you can see, we were actually up until about 100 years ago, we were heading into a, a cooling phase. Nothing dramatic, but it was definitely a cooling phase. That ended, obviously, with intense part of industrialization, as we know, and I guess, which takes us to where we are today, which is about one degree above pre-industrial. Doesn't look that much, but it's quite a lot in a massive system. Remember, this one degree is over every square meter of the surface of the Earth, including the oceans. 
So this isn't some little one degree, seven degrees, six degrees. This is like the entire temperature. Best analogy I can give you, your own body temperature right now, even though we're all different people, right? Different ages, different metabolisms. If we passed around a thermometer and stuck it in everybody's gob tonight, assuming that you're not running a temperature, you'd be coming in at about 37. At 40, you'd be in the hospital. At 42, you'd be dead. We operate within very, very narrow temperature bands. Planets operate within very, very narrow temperature bands as well. So, anyway, we look at a couple of scenarios here. If we're incredibly lucky in the 21st century and have low climate sensitivity, we will uh, break through by two degrees. It's highly unlikely. And the more evidence that's been piled up has told us really this is off the table. Most likely at the moment, takes us up to about four degrees. And with high climate sensitivity, we're looking at about six degrees. Now, you know, it doesn't take a PhD in anything to figure out that we're in a very anomalous period in history. Not just in human history, but in history history. There has never been as rapid a perturbation of the global climate in certainly, obviously in human history, but in reality, the last time anything as dramatic as this happened, or, or in our case, is on the cusp of happening, was when a meteor slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago and basically rewrote Earth history, right? We all know about that one, we all heard about that in school. That was one of those freak natural phenomena, nothing we could do about it. This time, we're the meteor. We, all of us, we together are driving this change. So, one of the problems with carbon dioxide, of course, and it's a real pain, is, of course, it is an invisible, colourless, odourless gas, a trace gas. So, it's been the bane of a lot of campaigners' lives trying to communicate the terrible threat posed by a colourless, odourless, invisible gas. So, some kind graphic people put together a little graphic to show you what CO2 would look like in the quantities that we're producing it if you could put, a big, if you could put every tonne of CO2 into a simple bubble, okay? Just a visual. So, so I'm going to play that now, if I may. So, here we are, the CO2 bubble. I hope the sound works in this. Here we go. Now. So, this is 2012. Per second, we add uh, 1,237 metric tons of CO2, okay? So that's how much you'd add in a second. So they've juxtaposed this against New York. So that would fill the UN building in about a half a second. And the pile you're looking at here is one day's global carbon dioxide emissions, if you could put each of those tons of carbon dioxide into a bubble, okay? So that's one day, one day, every day. And the really critical thing to remember about carbon dioxide is that what goes up, for all intents and purposes, stays up. Typical molecule of carbon dioxide, or 10 typical molecules of carbon dioxide, five of them will be still active in the atmosphere in 500 to 1,000 years' time. So in human time scales, this stuff will be heating the Earth long after humans. Now, I want to scale that back, if I might, to what our contribution is important. Like, you know, I, I hear so often, well, Ireland, we're small. We, you know, don't be at us. Make the Chinese do stuff. So the EPA here did a little graphic using the same data set that you just looked at. And they sort of basically said, well, what, what does Ireland produce in CO2 and CO2 equivalent in a day? So we produce 160,000 tonnes, okay? Now, so we add that, just tiny little Ireland, per day, right? So here it is juxtaposed against the pullback towers, which is kind of nice because I think it covers the incinerator. So it's some kind of 
poetic justice about that. Okay, so I'm going to now look briefly at what I call a tale of two heat waves. The first one was 1976. I just about remember this one. And as you can see, Ireland and Britain roasting. Absolutely huge heat wave. Okay, so have a good look around the screen. Down the bottom here, you can just about make out the temperature anomaly on the extreme right is 5 degrees. Now, for some weird reason, when they were updating the data set, they changed the bottom, the bottom axis. But they've actually increased it to 6 degrees, so nobody's cheating. Okay? So have a look at the, the equivalent heat wave from 1976 to 2018. Now, that dark color is 6 degrees above. Okay? So, this is the planet running at temperature. And what's really scary about this temperature is where it's accumulating, at the poles. This is a really, really bad place to be concentrating massive amounts of heating. Water has an unfortunate habit when it hits zero degrees and above. Of, uh, sorry, ice, I should say, has an unfortunate habit of stopping, stopping being ice. We have a huge cryosphere. We, you know, if we want to maintain the conditions for life on Earth that we have enjoyed and that have worked for us, we need to keep a lot of frozen ice on Earth. These two, North Pole, sorry, South Pole and North Pole, they effectively are the air conditioning units for the Earth. It's unimaginable that we could switch those off, and yet we're working on it. So that's important to consider as well, because every time you, we're approached with these things, you know, we're told, yeah, but this has happened in the past. Yes, it has. And I'm going to go backwards so we can have a look again. Yes, heat waves have happened in the past. It's the intensity and the global nature that has changed so dramatically in the last 30 years. And this again, well that's about 40 years, from 76 to uh, June 18. But that's just well within the lifetime of many people in this room. Such a short period. Now, some people are freaking out about this and other people not so much. You remember we had really weird weather over Christmas, right? Like really weird weather and the grass was growing. So. The Irish Times letters page, you can always count on it. Sir, my climate change action was to cut my lawn on Stephen's day and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I couldn't quite believe how advanced the growth of the spring bulbs. This is, I mean, if a frog had sent you a letter saying, Sir, the water in this pot is extremely warm and I'm enjoying it enormously. It's extraordinary. This is how we're already adjusting to the madness of cutting our lawns on Stephen's day. So, and also, um, I suppose part of that maybe is how we communicate stuff like this. So this is a little slide that I pinched from somewhere or other. This is our friendly weather forecast. He says, our extended forecast includes global warming and the catastrophic end of the human race. But for the weekend, it's looking like sunny skies, mild temperatures, and a general apathy towards environmental concerns. Back to you, Jim. So, this, we have normalized the apocalypse. It's pretty strange stuff, but yes, we have. I'm in a minority within what we would call the environmental movement. I'm not quite sure what the environmental movement is, but I guess it's environment, environmentalists who move. So I'm in a minority in that I believe most people, when it's presented honestly, squarely and fairly, can handle the truth about the environment. We've been bullshitting each other and ourselves for decades, right? I went back to the UN uh, climate conference in 1992, right? All the leaders of the world get together, all the scientists advise them, we're going to act, we're going to act globally, we're going to act locally, we're going to do this, right? From 1992 to 2018, we've ejected more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than in all the 1900 centuries up until 1992. 
Now, how crazy mad is that? So, we have done more in, in knowledge than we ever did in ignorance. Now, of course, many of these things are simply a function of the exponential factor because there's so many more of us, we've gotten so much wealthier and we've gotten so much more efficient at digging, basically quarrying stuff out of nature and converting it into stuff and pushing it out the production line and out the other end. We've gotten fantastically efficient at this. So, there are different climate debates to be had. As I said, there's plenty of, you know, uh, more constructive ones that you're obviously welcome to attend and I attend and we all attend and we try and keep the options open. I just want to go to the dark place a little bit, just a little bit, okay? You can take it or leave it, it's everybody's choice. And, you know, so just need to think about these things a little bit. Now, um, okay, I mean, the, within academic circles, within scientific circles, you know, serious freaking out has been going, out for, has been going on for a number of years. Within the scientific press, serious freaking out. And what really gets me is, it just so little of this ever makes it into the mainstream media. I mean, I'm regularly pitching newspapers with articles, and they go, oh, I don't know, it's very negative, John. Anything a bit more upbeat at all? Is there any good news? Now, imagine, you're in with your oncologist, right? You got, a, you got some, you got a problem. He's got a scan, and he wants to talk to you about the scan. And you say, ah, oh, no. Do you want to talk about the rugby at the weekend instead? That's basically what we're doing. He says, no, we really need to talk about your scan. No, no, France looking very good at the weekend. A bit worried about them. And this is the mad situation that we're in. The media don't want to talk about it. I mean, Fintan O'Toole, anyone read his article today, it was a kind of a mea culpa, basically. Whoops, the kids have been doing what the adults were supposed to do. And fair play to him for doing it, but it's a little overdue. So I have a slide here, but it does require sound. So, unless I mime it, so I'm going to have to see if, I have, if I'm able to coax some sound out of this little bad boy here, alright? So, give it a go. I think it's incredibly important to understand, really understand in a way that we can't forget what exactly we're playing with here. So, this is a short animation that talks about this world of four degrees and beyond. So, I hope you can hear the sound. Here we go. Ice has vanished from both poles, rainforests have turned to desert, and rising seas reach deep into continents. Populations move to the newly thawed regions in Canada and Siberia, but even here, summers may be too hot to grow crops anywhere but the coasts. There's nothing to buy, and producers have nothing to sell. Migrants force their way into the few habitable places left on Earth. Racial conflicts and civil wars are the inevitable outcome. When temperatures were last at this level 55 million years ago, alligators lived in the Arctic, Spain was a desert, and mangroves grew in England. All of this followed a sudden burst in global warming. It may have been caused by methane hydrate which forms under the sea and can escape with explosive force when oceans warm up. Methane is a greenhouse gas 20 times more potent than CO2. A huge eruption would make the chances of us avoiding the 5 degree rise extremely remote. To see what the world could look like at 6 degrees, we have to go back 251 million years. 95% of living species were wiped out. At sea, everything suffocated. And the only winners on land were fungi and the pig-like Lystrosaurus. 
sea levels rose 20 meters, and the warmer water released pent-up methane from the seabed, with the gas shooting hundreds of meters into the atmosphere. Perhaps worse than its effect on global warming, methane is flammable. The smallest spark or lightning storm will ignite it, sending fireballs tearing across the sky. Scientists say such explosions, much greater than a nuclear bomb, could destroy life on Earth almost entirely. Hydrogen sulfide thrives in the stagnant oceans. It's devastating for marine life, and in the atmosphere it poisons trees, animals, and humans. Finally, along with massive amounts of sulfur dioxide produced in such a world, it cripples the ozone layer, exposing what life remains to fatal levels of UV radiation. The forests are burning. The rivers are drying up. Continents carved up by toxic oceans and corpses pile up in cities across the planet. The six-degree world is a bleak one. If we don't know where we're going, then there's no reason to not get there. This, this remains the problem. It's like a collective failure of imagination that we can't imagine that we have primed our atmosphere, our environment, to turn deadly on us. Now, actually, Porig mentioned that at a talk uh, that he gave on Monday about a paper that came out the other day showing that the ocean is already losing its ability to hold dissolved oxygen. That's just the effect of ocean heating. Marine life is already beginning to suffocate. If we continue the way we're going, the oceans are going to go anoxic. The ocean surfaces, the top part of the oceans, will die right around the world, completely. And ocean mixing, warm and cool water, beyond a certain point, it goes stagnant and anoxic. And that's, that's pretty much game over. So that's not so good. Now, this is a lot to take in. I appreciate that. Although I suspect we have a self-selecting group of doughty folks here who've probably had their heads around this. I, I see a couple of pallbearers in the room as well, so I know I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in thinking that we're, in a, we're, we're up a particular creek. So I want to talk a little bit about trying to be positive about this. But I mean positive in a, in a, in a realistic way. This is a wonderful quote I got from, a, from, a, from an article. And it was talking about attending a grief workshop sponsored by a climate change group. They told us that, I'll, I'll bring it up a little louder, grief processed on one's own turns to despair, but grief processed communally becomes medicine. And that for me is one of the smartest things I've ever read in relation to how we deal with this. Because if we simply fall in on ourselves and process this type of bad news, all we do is withdraw, become sullen, become despairing. And jumping from denial to despair is no damn use, because denial means do nothing, despair means do nothing. There's a huge bit between those two poles where we have options and we have choices. So, just to finish the quote, the thing that may save us is our broken hearts, for true action can only come through these deeper feelings. As long as we cling to the idea that somehow or other we're going to fix this, we're going to come up with a machine, you know, the government's on it, the UN have got a plan. As long as we continue to offshore our own future to other people who don't give a shit, by the way, mostly, we are going to a four, five, and six degree world this century. 
if not in your lifetime, guaranteed in our children's lifetimes. This century. Now, that's a hell of a thing to take in. Now, I'm taking a little bit of poetic license here because, you know, I always go for the cheap shots. Um, this is, if we melt everything, this is the, the, the archipelago of Ireland. But that does require melting everything, and we may not, that will take time. But remember, beyond a certain point, we commit enough energy into the atmosphere that we will melt every cubic metre of ice on Earth. And we're already well underway to that. So, anyway, pick your own island. You could, you could be king of an island there somewhere. So, okay. Strangely, despite this pretty overwhelming evidence, we still open our newspapers, we still look online, and we still hear people saying, that's all bullshit, that's just that guy, what do they know about it? Anyway, climate's changed in the past, etc., etc. Now, I have a whole 200-slide set on media and stuff, which you're very pleased to hear we won't be doing tonight. But, anyway, I'll give you the, 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 the abbreviated tour, if I may, right? This is a slide I call Motivated Reasoning. This is how what we uh, uh, charitably call climate skeptics, how they view global warming. So let's look at the period 1970 to 1976. Massive variability in the climate system, and as anybody can see, there is no global warming, right? We agree? Now, let's roll the tape on. As you can see, there is no global warming, there's no global warming, there's no global warming, etc. right? Now, that's how skeptics present data. This is how scientists and realists present the same data. But just think of the fun highly motivated billionaires can have with this in the meanwhile. Every time they pick a slightly colder year, every time they pick a freeze event, to stick it on the front page of the newspaper, the big climate change fraud, no reason for global warming, or sorry, a hundred reasons why global warming is natural. Climate change lies, right? And this is the game that's being played. What I don't get is where they think they're going. This is the bit I still haven't figured out how they think they're going to get out of this mess themselves. But anyway, that's another matter. So again, as I mentioned, this is the whistle-stop tour of my media slide set. So here's a quick summary. There's, there's a consensus of scientists on global warming because there's a consensus of evidence. It's that strong. It's a 97.3. And believe you me, with humans, you know, there's 3% of people believe in unicorns. Actually, it could be higher. So this is, a, this is a pretty goddamn high consensus by any stretch. And scientists are like cats. You can't get them to agree on anything. They always go their own way. So this is an amazing consensus. Now, how is that consensus reflected in the media? Let's have a look. Let's do a direct overlay. Suddenly, we find that 28% of media coverage reflects the scientific consensus. 72% doesn't. So, where do people get their scientific information? Well, obviously, we are, we all, we're all sharing rooms with climatologists, not. So let's have a look and see where we get our information. And let's see who we're listening to, the climatologists or the media. As you can see, public perception is almost a complete overlap with the media presentation slash misrepresentation of this issue. Now, this is a pretty serious one to get wrong. And again, as I said, this is very much the abbreviated version, so I'll just include my, my own parting thoughts on this, which is it says, if someone says it's raining and another person says it's dry, as a journalist, it's not your job to quote them both, it's your job to look out the window and find out which is true. That's a really important point, because we get so much he said, she said uh, reporting, and up to and including very recently, where we're still reporting the obscure viewpoints that simply have no position in a, in a serious discussion. So, 
I'm going to get through the energy part of this really, really fast. This slide is from 1820 to the present day. And what you'll notice, and it's not a surprise, is the massive accumulation of energy. We, first of all, the early part of the Industrial Revolution was driven by biofuels. Then we started digging up coal really, really fast. Then we discovered the joys of oil here in green. And we added in uh, chuckloads of natural gas, a little bit of hydro, a little bit of nuclear. I couldn't even fit renewables on this slide. It's such a narrow little thing. But what you notice most of all is the exponential function. Okay? And this, it's all that released energy. We're injecting carbon from eons ago, from other carbon cycles. And we're injecting it suddenly. It's like as if we've taken 50 million years of carbon and just pushed it into 50 years. It's, it's, it's really, there's simply no analog, not just in human history, there's no analog in Earth history for this. Like for this level of release. So, it's not all good. We better have worked. Come on. Ah, here we go. Yeah. Now, what we have here is a two-sided chart, right? And again, this scale, if you can see, is 1850 to 2013 when this slide was put together. And what you have here is energy use and carbon emissions in lockstep. Basically, as I said, a carbon, think of it as the exhaust pipe of humanity. So, we have risen through it. The marvelous thing about this chart is you can even spot things like the Great Depression and the temporary effect it had, the oil crisis, and even the 2008 one. It just makes a little bit of a bump. But the overall thing is, it's energy up. Now, those clever scientists have done a calculation. Now, this was done in 2013, so unfortunately the angles have changed a little bit since then because they were basically saying, starting now, starting in 2013, if we want to take out here, okay, if we want to take out a coin and toss for your future, right? Heads, we keep it under two degrees, tails, we don't, okay? So let's take a coin toss. Let's see how rapidly we have to decarbonize everything. Not the favorite part of the economy or the society or the bit that doesn't affect you, everything. So let's go down the other side of Mount Carbon. Here we go. So this is for a 50% chance of not exceeding two degrees, which we were told up until about a year ago was the cutoff point. They've since said, no, it's 1.5. But we'll stick with two degrees for now. So we've got to get to effectively zero in that time frame. Unfortunately, if we'd started this 20, 30 years ago, we could have managed at three to five percent cuts per annum. We're now looking at basically anywhere between six to 10 or 11 percent. Straight line per annum forever until we have no carbon left in society. Now, some things you might notice about this is, this is a very different future, okay? This is a really radically different future. This future doesn't include, you know, buying stuff off Amazon because you're bored. This future doesn't involve um, stag parties in Prague. This future doesn't involve popping over to Dubai you know, for the weekend. That's gone. There is not enough carbon space left in the atmosphere for that future. So if that's the future that you think is coming, well, prepare to mourn it, because we either voluntarily give it up or it's going to be taken away. So that's kind of the choice we're in. So we do have choices, and I think that's the really incredibly important thing to keep in mind here. Yes, this is a hard sell and it's tough news, but we have choices. We can either take this jump together and, you know, we're going to break a few bones on landing, or we can just keep climbing up the stairs and eventually get pushed out the top story window. So that's kind of where we're at in it. It's an analogy to keep in your mind.
So um, somebody did a simplified version of this, which I quite like. They call it climate change a timeline. It's sort of more like climate awareness a timeline. It runs something like this. Hmm, yeah, climate change, hmm, so, not real, hmm, hmm. Okay, 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 it's real, it's real. Uh, you know, it's changing, but I'm just not convinced it's us. Okay, it is us, and okay, not so good. So this is the, we don't want to get to the end of the climate change timeline. I think that's very important. So anyway, that's the science bit. So I'm going to move on from that and maybe do the stuff that you're probably a little more interested in, the ecology side. I'm sure everybody knows what's going on here, right? This is a province in China where they're hand-pollinating um, orchards because all the pollinators are dead. So this is the ghost of uh, agricultural seasons to come. And here you have the same thing again, hand pollination. And obviously, hand pollination in Ireland could be a, could be, well, could be could be an issue for us. So we know about this. We know about the insect apocalypse. We know, for example, insect populations in Germany have crashed by 78 percent since 1991. It's pretty staggering. And of course, when you take out insects, uh, arthropods generally out of out of, out of a, a system, you're 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 basically punching massive, massive holes in your ecological system, in a connected system. And we've seen this again. This is another piece, plummeting insect numbers, uh, threatened collapse of nature. And, and I think even, but it's not like we're not trying to do something. This is one I just added in today. Ecologists urge birds to avert global decline of insects by adopting a seed-based diet. Sorry. Come on, you've got to laugh, laugh a little bit. It is a satirical publication, by the way, often confused with straight publications these days. So, anyway, uh, nature unfortunately isn't quite that cooperative on these matters. So, anyway, we know about this, we also know, these are statements of the obvious, this particular article relates to pesticides, that we either introduce radical changes or our ecosystems that support us are gone. Now, they're already, as, as you guys know, I'm sure better than most, in like a really, really serious uh, situation. So here we have a chart plotting the populations of seabirds down 70% since, the 19, since 1950. Seabirds, the ones you think would be the least affected by humans, the ones that operate the furthest from humans, 70% down since 1950. So I guess what we're looking at really in nature is the reverse of a phenomenon called the Great Acceleration which happened in human enterprise, human economics, human population from 1950 to the present day, where essentially we went that away and nature went that away because guess what, it turned out to be a zero-sum game. So again, we could do the rest of the evening with gory slides, but I'm not gonna, you're well familiar with these type of images. Okay, a little bit. We all know about these. And I think it's really important to say, particularly on the marine side, that it's, it's not one thing. It's not just climate change. We're looking at pollution, acidification, overfishing. It's the whole, really, the four horsemen, if you like. So we have this threat coming out nature. And the threat is us. There's no question about it. The threat is us. Now, I'm not saying this is the same guy as the first one. But you get the picture. We're, we've decided to go to war on nature. And the bad news is we're winning. So this is a slide which you've probably seen, which I find really, really troublesome. Um, and this is a mother weaning its young, essentially with plastic crap right down its throat. And it's, you know, what can I say? So um, this is a great slide. Uh, every single grey box at the top, that's a million tons of meat, okay? 
Now, here we are, us humans. So that's how many, if we got all the humans in the world, 7.7 .7 billion of us up on the scales, that's how much we would be in million tons of meat, okay? Now, let's add in our pets and livestock, okay? We started with our cattle, we went to our pigs, goats, sheep, and miscellaneous, okay? Got them all there. So that's the human sphere of meat, all right? Now, let's add in, what's missing from that, of course, is the natural world. This is land, by the way, we're talking about here, just for the record. So let's add in wild animals, they're in green. Here we go. There, there, and there's a couple of elephants down here, and there's a few more over here, okay? That's it. That's where we stand right now in weight of land-based animals in the world. Okay, now I'm excluding arthropods, insects, right? We're talking about basically vertebrates, all right? So we have a pretty staggering imbalance. Let's do it in numbers. Ourselves and our domestic animals outweigh all wild vertebrates by a factor of 42, 42-fold, okay? So, and this is only going one way. If I come back here again in the unlikely event, I'm invited back again next year, I'll probably be saying it's 43-fold. So this is going in one way and it's going super fast. So we know all these things, and this is the really, it's the really weird thing. We know this stuff. This is an article from my files, uh, which was a few years back, and it said Earth has lost half its wildlife in the past 40 years, according to the, the Wrestling Federation, or the Wildlife Fund. So I thought, wow, that's, that, that's, so I kept that one on file. But I, of course, you've got to keep updating your slide set. So you come back again, so you go from 52% to a 67% estimate by next year, okay? So this is the unfortunately named Living Planet Index. 67% of wild animals in the world lost by 2020. This, by the way, is from a base model, baseline of 1970. The natural world had already had the shit hammered out of it by 1970. It wasn't like we were starting in the Garden of Eden. So this is already starting from a diminished baseline in 1970. So that, these figures are a great understatement of actual human impacts. You'd need to go back way hundreds of years to actually get a, a natural Garden of Eden. So I did mention earlier, and I want to come back to it, about, human, about uh, 2018 being the best year in human history. And once again, the world's population was living longer and living better than ever before. And they're right, we were. But as I said, some people call it the paradox of progress. And it was summed up very nicely by this particular writer. And he said, nature shrinks as capital grows. The growth of the market can never solve the crisis it creates. So beware of green growth. Because this is another thing that's been peddled, that we're going to green grow our way out of this crisis. And we're going to just, because green growth needs stuff. Growth needs stuff. What we need is stall the digger, literally stall the digger, back up, and get, leave that earth alone to heal and recover because that's the only realistic chance that we have of getting out of this century alive. So just a couple of uh, thoughts if you like. This is Will Steffen from uh, Stockholm. He said, it's difficult to overestimate the scale and speed of change. In a single lifetime, humanity has become a planetary scale geological force. I mean, you know, sometimes we sort of, we say, well, it's, we're just little, but we're not. We're a planetary scale geological force. But it's not all down. This is a copy of Newsweek that I found. It said 100 places to explore before they disappear. And there's a climate change special. 
Now, you've got to admire the left brain, right brain that comes up with stuff like that, you know? So, um, oops, I think we got the same slide in again, but we'll skip on over that. It was so good, I wanted to go through this one with you again. Okay. So, okay, well, where does this leave us all? This is uh, a, a climate scientist online, just to, and he said, in a high carbon world, old people get the cushy retirements, and you, as in the young, you get the catastrophes, tragic losses, and poverty. Truth, youngsters, kids, if you aren't radicalized yet, you don't understand your own self-interest. And we're seeing, by the way, an incredible schism between people our age and young people on this issue. And young people are waking up and smelling the bullshit and realizing that our generation have shafted them royally. And I think we're going to see really serious consequences from this, like serious destabilization of relationships coming down. And by the way, good. We deserve it. So, job interviewer, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Uh, well, we're on track for four degree warming. Uh, what are you talking about? So, this again is a teacher. Uh, children, where do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to be when you grow up? Alive. So, as you can see, I'm now segueing into my Greta part of the, of the, of the, of the session. So, um, this, she was 15 at the time when she started her protest. There it is, Saturday the 1st of September. And it is, she's become a global phenomenon. And I like her frankness. I think her frankness is refreshing. Very refreshing. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it because you adults are shitting on my future. I mean, you've got to love it. Just minimum amount of words, maximum amount of impact. Okay? And she puts it again, we're heading full speed for a catastrophe. And in this situation, the only unreason sorry, the only reasonable thing is to be unreasonable. Now, actually, better than me talking, I'll let Greta take it from here. This is a very You say you love your children above all else. And yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. You have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. How about that? Now, there has been a political response. I want to share it with you. Thanks very much. Thank you. As I'm sure you know by now, this is Green Week and Fine Gael is promoting uh, lots of different ways where we can change uh, what we do and change our behaviour in a small way uh, that helps us to tackle climate change, reduce waste and improve our environment. Uh, so I converted uh, a few weeks ago to a keep cup. Uh, you may not know this, but 200 million um, throwaway coffee cups are produced in Ireland every year. And if you think about that, uh, it's pretty bonkers. So one of the small things you can do uh, is to buy a keep cup and use it instead. Uh, for more tips, check out Finnegale.ie. I think the key phrase in that sentence was, if you think about it, it's pretty bonkers. This is our Prime Minister, folks, in the middle of the greatest existential crisis in human history. Keep cups. Cool. Okay. So, how are we doing over in the Department of Heritage? Um, anyone who was at the Biodiversity Conference last week, we got a sort of a, 
laugh isn't the word, let's say a giggle, a nervous giggle at Josepha Madigan's response to biodiversity crashing here in Ireland, um, bird boxes. So um, I think the political response is that we think we should begin to start thinking about solutions to climate change. Now, we need to start thinking about solutions to climate change a long time ago. There are plenty of solutions to climate change. We need to start acting on them. We need to start making difficult political decisions. We need to start kicking ass, not having talks about having talks. We do not have time. That period is gone. And for those people, I should say, who object or who find it objectionable, you know, people kicking up about this, this is my, undoubtedly my favorite poster. <laughs> Just pretty much nails it. So, okay, uh, oh, that one again. Okay, we'll keep going. It was a good slide, though. Yes. Uh, this is actually that bit where I ask you now, do you remember those percentages? Because there will be a question at the end. Yeah, okay. Now, I don't know, how are we doing time-wise, by the way? Because I wanted, this is, this is about three or four minutes, right? It's a little bit of a head wrecker. But if we're out of time, I'm happy to skip over. So what do you think? You sure? Okay. Okay, I'll give you the context. This is fiction. Fiction, okay? So this is from a series called The Newsroom, where they put together, it, 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 this particular report shadowed the moment a couple of year, a few years back when global CO2 levels passed 400 parts per million for the first time. So basically, they're bringing in a scientist from the US EPA to talk about that, okay? Now, anyway, you won't see this in RTE, so don't be alarmed. Tell us about the findings in the report that was just released. The latest measurements taken at Mauna Loa in Hawaii indicate a CO2 level of 400 parts per million. Just so we know what we're talking about, if you were a doctor and we were the patient, what's your prognosis? A thousand years? Two thousand years? A person has already been born who will die due to catastrophic failure of the planet. What did he just say? Okay, can you uh, expand on that? Sure. Um, the last time there was this much CO2 in the air, the oceans were 80 feet higher than they are now. Two things you should know. Half the world's population lives within 120 miles of an ocean. And the other? Humans can't breathe underwater. You're saying the situation's dire. Not exactly. Um, your house is burning to the ground. The situation's dire. Your house has already burned to the ground. The situation's over. So what can we do to reverse this? Well, there's a lot we could do. Good. From 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, but now, no. Can you make an analogy that might help us understand? Sure. Um, it's as if you're sitting in your car, uh, in your garage, with the engine running, the door closed, and you've slipped into unconsciousness, and uh, that's it. What if someone comes and opens the door? You're already dead. What if the person got there in time? Then you'd be safe. Okay. So now what's the CO2 equivalent of the getting there on time? Shutting off the car 20 years ago. You sound like you're saying it's hopeless. Yeah. Is that the uh, administration's position or yours? There isn't a position on this any more than there's a position on the temperature at which water boils. The administration, let me try to, your administration. And don't forget, I need to solar, clean coal, nuclear power, raising fuel economy standards, and building a more efficient electrical grid. Yes. And? That would have been great. 
Let's see if we can't find a better spin. People are starting their weekends. The report says we can release 565 more gigatons of CO2 without the effects being calamitous. It says we can only release 565 gigatons. So what if we only release 564? Well, then we would have a reasonable shot at some form of dystopian post-apocalyptic life. But the carbon dioxide in the oil that we've already leased is 2,795 gigatons. So what would all this look like? mass migrations, food and water shortages, spread of deadly disease, endless wildfires, way too many to keep under control, storms that have the power to level cities, blacken out the sky, and create permanent darkness. You're going to get in trouble for saying this publicly? Who cares? Mr. Westbrook. We want to inform people, but we don't want to alarm them. Can you give us a reason to be optimistic? Well, that's the thing, Will. Americans are optimistic by nature. And if we face this problem head on, if we listen to our best scientists and act decisively and passionately, I still don't see any way we can survive. Okay, Richard Westbrook, <laughs> administrator of the EPA. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Newsnight. We'll be back right after this. I had to pass. I had to find somebody to make me look like the optimist in the room. So, anyway, look, it is only fiction. I think he's overranked the uh, the the existential cake a little bit there. The pudding. There is more space than he suggests, and there are more choices. So that wasn't intended to be a throw yourself out the window type of uh, clip. It was more good fun, you know, lighthearted. So. <laughs> Oh, apologies. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up uh, with just one of my favourite authors, uh, this guy called Professor Clive Ham Hamilton. He's an ethicist who's written a splendid uh, book called Requiem for a Species. And, and he describes it like this. He says, awakening to the prospect of climate disruption compels us to abandon most of the comfortable beliefs that have sustained our sense of the world as a stable place. And when you recognise that your dreams of the future are built on sand, the natural human response is to despair. But in the current circumstances, clinging to hopefulness is just another form of denial. We must allow ourselves to enter a phase of desolation and hopelessness. In short, to grieve. To grieve for the loss of the future that we thought we were going to have. So, I will finish this with the three stages of grief. Despair, accept, and the most important one, act. As in this we have had your test results. May I be blunt with you? No. Right. Well, everything is fine. You're not going to die. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. Right. Bye. Okay. Now, I, I'm definitely done, except for this one last little clip where I segue together this incredible Canadian rap artist whose mother is a climatologist, can you believe it? And he's written a song called IPCC. Now, it's a rap song. Who thought there was a rap song about the IPCC? So what I did was I kind of attached it to a video of a different video and put the two together. Will I play it or will we finish up? Are you sure? That alright? Okay. It's a bit of fun and you can all sing along when you get to the chorus. And I put the words of the chorus up on screen. <laughs> I'm a sick puppy, I know. <laughs>
new definition of hardcore Check out the intergovernmental climate report It says the world is getting warmer unequivocally And the oceans have increased 30% in acidity And 90% of the warming trend is oceanic and concentrated in the Arctic Nobody panic, but the level of greenhouse gases in the air is higher now than it's been in millions of years We added more than a trillion tons of CO2 to the atmosphere It's gonna be centuries before some of the gas is clear Dropping science, unvarnished, unbiased But I don't blame you if your instinct is to deny it Cause we evolved to prioritize immediate threats If it bleeds, it leads, that's what the media says So let the gangster-esque rap music paint a picture And I'll hit you with some evidence-based predictions Get ready for wars, famines, droughts, floods, hurricanes, heat waves, murders, thugs, chaos, refugees, stress, disease, extinction, disaster, IPCC, wars, famines, droughts, floods, hurricanes, heat waves, chaos, refugees, stress, disease, extinction, disaster, IPCC. Hollywood summer blockbusters can't touch this I get my thrills from the latest reports published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Formed in 1988 to get the science straight Now they dropped the fifth assessment and the data's up to date So allow me to summarize bad things on the way Higher emissions, sea level rise, dire predictions On target for disaster movie style predicaments In Copenhagen we set a limit of two degrees But that's still enough to disintegrate major ice sheets Over the course of centuries or maybe decades Yes, some of the details are still up for debate They fluctuate between certain disaster and likely disaster Slow and steady or higher and faster Consensus It's the lowest common denominator Which means it's probably gonna be way worse than the wars Famines, droughts, floods, hurricanes, heat waves, thugs, chaos, refugees, stress, disease, extinction, disaster, IPCC Wars, famines, droughts, floods, hurricanes, heat waves, murders, thugs, chaos, refugees, stress, disease, extinction, disaster, IPCC So be afraid be very afraid, but we're not, despite what the scenarios say. And the effect of talking about it is visible yarning, and occasionally changing our behavior microscopically. And even those who get it tend to get it logically, but not viscerally. So we're navigating myopathy. The threat is existential, it's not environmental, and your individual response is inconsequential. Only coordination of our whole species is going to keep coastal cities from sinking below the deep seas. And when was the last time a solution included? of us. Geophysics is at the mercy of geopolitics. Climate change communicators keep it positive. People need to feel like they still have options, and we do have options. Either we find a solution or stick with the business as usual level pollution. Get used to the wars. Famines, droughts, floods, hurricanes, heat waves, murders, thugs, chaos, refugees, stress, disease, extinction, disaster, IPCC, wars, famines, droughts, I think I'm done. Thank you very much.
You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.